Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. What's going on, everybody? Thanks for joining me on another solo sode of the Red Light Report. Hope everyone's having a fantastic start to their 2024. It's kind of crazy where we're, we're seeing that year already, and, and we're quickly working our way through January. It's a time is elusive, yet it's an illusion, right? As, as we've spoken about on prior uh, podcasts. But regardless, thanks for joining me today. Let's have some fun as we dive into the research. We'll, we'll look over some red light therapy stuff, of course, mitochondrial health, and our new best friend, methylene blue, and also a new type of blue. Yes, there's something else besides methylene blue that may uh, be beneficial to our health. Uh, But regardless, yeah, we're going to dig into some research. It's been a while since we've done that. So I have a pile of research I want to cover, not just in this episode, but but other solo sodes as well as we interject interject these solo sodes in between some um, interviews we have coming up. But regardless, no really big announcements other than at the time of this recording, the revamp cupping system is coming live. So there was that opportunity to get the pre-sale discount of 15%, uh, which we may extend a couple more days, maybe through the weekend, if you're interested in that red light therapy cupping system. So that's really exciting. We've already got some great feedback from people that have trialed it. Uh, and you'll you'll probably see those people posting on social media in the relatively near future. So we can, if you're kind of waiting to see what people think of it, we'll begin some feedback in the near future. And then kind of a sneak peek into what BioLite has coming down the pipeline. And for those of you that have heard me speak on other podcasts, you may have heard me uh, mention this when I'm being interviewed, is that I think the direction of the red light therapy space going forward is going to be less panels and more so other types of technology that you can integrate into your daily life without really have without really having to set aside time to do so because I think that's one of the friction points with red light therapy is having to set aside time to do it. So if we can find ways that even just the lay public can begin integrating red light therapy or other types of light therapy into their daily regimen without having to think about it, the impact on the health of the public at large could only benefit from that. So again, that's kind of where I see the future going with with light therapy and red light therapy. And so that's the direction I'm going with BioLite 2024 and beyond and moving forward. So you're going to see Certain products are not going to be as heavily uh, promoted or talked about because I think they are going to become, maybe archaic is too strong of a word, but they're going to become, and maybe obsolete is too strong of a word. But I think specifically panels are are going to become less desirable or less popular because there's going to be countless other ways to integrate your health without having to stand in front of a panel or without having a bright panel blasting your face or your eyes. For example, right now I'm doing the podcast in front of my computer. I have my glow on. The glow is getting my face with some very low light irradiance. So I'm getting some anti-aging. The the soft red light, I can look literally into the LEDs. So we're getting some eye health benefits. It's not harsh to my eyes and it's counteracting the blue light of the screen. There's other ways like people who are into yoga. Well, now you can use a mat to do your stretches, to do your relaxing, breathing exercises on that. You don't have to set aside time on top of yoga or on top of your daily life to integrate red light therapy. And and there's countless ways. It's kind of when you're in this space, the, the limitation is really your imagination. There's countless ways Companies like BioLite, and I hope other companies out there are are thinking of revolutionizing and finding ways to integrate red light therapy, again, without this colloquial panel setup. Again, there's a time and place for it, um, and still right now, it's relevant, but I think going forward, it's going to become less panels, more other types of technologies, other types of ways to integrate red light therapy. So all of that to say, to wrap this up, is that... And I made this decision uh, last year, months ago, that going into 2024 and beyond, 
BioLite's going to be in a very, or is going to be headed into a very new and exciting and innovative direction. We already have been, but even more so. So especially in the first half of 2024, you're going to see a slew of new products coming into the lineup and we'll be not discarding, but again, less promoting and less pushing and less talking about the the panel type of products. So if you have a panel or you're or you're looking into a BioLite panel or or even a different company, that's not to say that's a bad investment or that's a bad decision or specifically if you're looking at a BioLite panel or have a BioLite panel, that doesn't mean you're going to lose customer customer service and support for those products. Again, this is just a vision. This is how I see the company and really the whole red light therapy space moving forward. Um, is less panels, more other types of technology. And you'll see what I mean as BioLite continues to release new products. Uh, For example, we already have a couple of other new and innovative ways we're going to integrate methylene blue. So of course, right now we have BioBlue, which is essentially that enhanced methylene blue supplement. But we already have a handful of new ways we're going to be integrating methylene blue because again, methylene blue goes hand in hand with red light therapy. We have a couple of other novel products that are not even on the market that again, you'll see what I mean when it happens, but these products will be seamlessly integrate, integrated into habits or, or health regimens that people already do. So again, we're not having to set aside 10 or 15 or 20 minutes to do red light therapy you'll just be doing it without having to think about it and thus reaping the benefits all all the same. So I'm really excited to see this all come together and play out. And of course, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen over three months or six months or even 12 months. But surely by the middle, let alone the end of 2024, you'll see this vision come into play and you'll see the direction the BioLite is headed as far as a red light therapy company And really, it's a mitochondrial health company because, again, we have red light therapy. We have methylene blue. Who knows what's coming down the pipeline as we get more and more of this information and research coming to us from all directions as it relates to photobiomodulation, mitochondrial health, and methylene blue. So regardless, just to give you guys kind of a little insight as far as what I'm thinking as I'm reading the research or as I'm reading books or as I'm learning from other experts in the health and wellness and biohacking and red light therapy space, so that, that's kind of what you can look forward to from BioLite specifically in the near, in the short term, I should say, the short term and long term uh, vision of BioLite. But with all of that being said, let's jump into some research. And so this first article we're going to look at came out in November last year. So a month and a half ago, November 25th, 2023, it's entitled Red Flags in Primary Mitochondrial Diseases what should we recognize? And so quickly, just to go into the abstract, and then we'll, we'll touch upon the article here shortly after that. Uh, it goes on to say that primary mitochondrial diseases, or PMDs, primary mitochondrial diseases, are complex group of metabolic disorders caused by genetically determined impairment of the mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation. So again, this is genetically determined impairment. The unique features of mitochondrial genetics and the pivotal role of mitochondria in cell biology explain the phenotypical heterogeneity of primary mitochondrial diseases and the resulting diagnostic challenges that follow. Some peculiar features, i.e. red flags, may indicate a primary mitochondrial disease helping the physician to orient in this diagnostic maze. In this narrative review, we aimed to outline the features of the most common mitochondrial red flags offering a general overview on the topic that could help physicians to untangle mitochondrial medicine complexity. So that's the abstract. But this is exciting because, as you heard in that last sentence, this is kind of tailored or directed towards physicians. And so that's exciting because now we're talking mitochondrial diseases and physicians, hopefully allopathic physicians. And this isn't to say this is going to be something that's integrated overnight, but to see that this type of information is hopefully going to become more pervasive in the allopathic physician model, that's really exciting. And so of course, a lot of this 
you guys have already heard of in one form or another if, if you've been diving into mitochondrial health and mitochondrial dysfunction and really all that entails. And this is a pretty deep article. There, it's, it's very long and detailed, so I'm not going to go through all of it. But again, it's really highlighting different type of symptoms and the red flags that are that are related to that. And so at the end of this article, there's a nice depiction that really summarizes everything that it talks about. So I'm just going to kind of talk through this summarization and the depiction, if you will, just to kind of summarize what the whole article was about. And if this is something you're interested in and want to read more about, of course, there will be the link to this article in the show notes of this episode. But to walk through this depiction, so we have a human body on the side. And because in the article, they're talking about different systems in the body. So for example, the first one is the central nervous system. And these are the manifestations if you're a physician or, or just a layperson dealing with, you know, yourself or significant other or your kid, what have you. These are the manifestations of these, again, the PMDs or the primary mitochondrial diseases that you would see as it relates to the central nervous system. So for example, we have stroke-like episodes, and then there's brainstem and basal ganglia lesions. There's epilepsy, ataxia, Parkinsonism, and migraines. So again, all of those are manifestations of PMDs in the central nervous system. And then within all of these manifestations, there's these red flags that they alluded to. And the red flags are, are quite sciencey and, and a little uh, uh, deep in the trenches, if you will. So I'm not going to read them out loud because I think it would be kind of dry for the vast majority of you. But again, if you kind of want to nerd out and see what I'm talking about and kind of walk through, uh, you know, all of these different manifestations and all the various red flags, then I invite you to check out that link in the show notes to this article to see what I'm talking about. But I'm just going to run through the rest of the different systems they talked about in the article and, and the correlative manifestations. And the whole point of me bringing this article to your attention is just to get you exposed so you know what information is out there, specifically this article being targeted towards, towards physicians. So at least you know this information is getting out there and at least you're being exposed to it as well. If, if you're not very familiar with mitochondrial health, this is kind of a nice little introductory to see all the various diagnoses or, or diseases that are tied to mitochondrial issues. Um, and for those of you that are, that are familiar, this is kind of just a nice review of reminding us really how impactful mitochondrial health is as far as all of the systems in our body. So we already covered the central nervous system. Let's go to eyes and ears. We have optic atrophy, retinopathy, ptosis, and ptosis is that eye drooping, and then sensoneural hearing loss. When we go to the heart, we have cardiomyopathy and conduction disorders. When we look at gastrointestinal, there's liver failure, and then gastrointestinal dysmotility. When we look at the kidneys, we have glomerulopathy, we have tubulopathy. When we look at the endocrine system, we have diabetes mellitus and thyroid dysfunction. So for example, this, this is an easier one for red flags because again, we're, we're trying to get in the mind of a physician when they're working with patients. So the red flags for the endocrine system are as such. So for diabetes, it would be young and non-overweight patients. That would be a red flag for diabetes mellitus. The red flag for thyroid dysfunction would be hypothyroidism. So again, this is specifically as it relates to primary mitochondrial diseases, which as a reminder are a complex group of metabolic disorders caused by genetically determined impairment of the mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation. So again, I'll underscore once again, genetically determined impairment. So, so this isn't specifically all types of uh, mitochondrial dysfunction. This is, again, genetically determined impairment of oxidative phosphorylation of, of the mitochondria. So when you're a physician trying to dictate if, if your patient has a primary mitochondrial disease, a PMD, that's what the red flags are for. So again, hypothyroidism would be a red flag for the PMD of the endocrine system 
that is thyroid dysfunction. At this point, I'm sure you guys have heard of Methylene Blue, especially if you've been listening to this podcast. You guys have heard me shout from the mountaintops the many benefits of Methylene Blue. So Methylene Blue is a major, major mitochondrial booster. It has a lot of similar properties as red light therapy, but they actually work slightly differently as far as how they derive their benefits to the mitochondrial function. A couple of the, my favorite aspects include the fact that when you ingest it, the majority of the Methylene Blue ends up in your brain. So that's why you see these amazing cognitive, mental energy boosts from Methylene Blue. It can even stave off or prevent or reverse some types of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. This is my second favorite part about it. The Methylene Blue has this innate sense to help cells that have the most mitochondrial dysfunction first before helping other cells. So not only does it help cells that need the help most, but again, most of the Methylene Blue ends up in your brain where, as you all know, that is the most mitochondrial dense tissue in the body. Thus, that's why you see all these amazing benefits with the brain with methylene blue. And then thirdly, red light therapy and methylene blue are major synergists. So of course you have your independent benefits when you just use methylene blue or red light therapy. But when you combine them together, you amplify the benefits of one another and you get the synergistic response. So anyone that's interested in red light therapy should at least be considering or looking into the many benefits of methylene blue. And as you know by now, if you've been listening to this podcast, my company BioLite has recently released an enhanced methylene blue product that includes certain ingredients like NMN that further boost the energy production of the mitochondria. It also enhances the photodynamic activity already associated with methylene blue by including colloidal gold, colloidal silver, which have their own antimicrobial or cognitive benefits, silver and gold respectively, but they also have their own photodynamic benefits as well. So again, you're amplifying the benefits of red light therapy when you ingest BioBlue. Lastly, fulvic acid helps you absorb anything that you're consuming when you're also taking it with fulvic acid. So it drives everything deeper into the cells. When you take BioBlue, it helps further absorb the methylene blue, the NMN, and the colloidal gold and silver. So you get this enhanced methylene blue product with BioBlue. And so of course, for my loyal listeners, especially you guys that have listened this far into the ad in the middle of the episode here, I'm going to give you guys an exclusive 15% discount on your order of BioBlue. And you can apply that to a single pack or a double pack or a four pack or a 10 pack. And of course, with a larger quantity, you actually get an increased discount. Simply use coupon code BioBlue15 at checkout. That's BioBlue15 at checkout. And you can snag that 15% discount off your order of BioBlue. So if you're interested in seeing what all of the excitement around Methylene Blue is about from its ability to improve cognition, energy, improve mitochondrial function, and furthermore help mitigate or prevent things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and depression, pain, cancer, go ahead and give BioLite's Methylene Blue Enhanced product, BioBlue, a shot and see what you notice, especially when you combine it with your red light therapy treatments. But moving along here, there's only two more. Uh, So when we look at neuromuscular, the manifestations are neuropathies, skeletal myopathies, and ocular myopathies. And under the label of other, and these are interesting, we have short stature as a manifestation. We have lactic acidosis. We have lipoma. And then we have cachexia, which is essentially involves rapid weight loss and, and muscle loss. That's cachexia. Uh, so again, those those are the systems and, and the manifestations that were brought to attention in this article as it relates to primary mitochondrial diseases. So again, I'll just read the last couple paragraphs here because it kind of helps summarize it. So in conclusion, to the non-specialist, PMDs are complicated and puzzling, difficult to recognize, and challenging to diagnose. However, important advances have been made in the field of PMDs, diagnostics, and phenotyping, as well as in the generation of preclinical models and therapeutics. Given the exciting era that mitochondrial medicine is experiencing, and also thanks to international community efforts, there is more need to raise awareness and stimulate interests or interest towards these disorders. So again, in a nutshell, um, this article is exciting just because apparently this type of information is going to become more, more ubiquitous in in the allopathic model amongst physicians, so on and so forth. So hopefully when they're 
diagnosing patients in the future, but hopefully not the too distant future, these these type of primary mitochondrial uh, disorders or diseases, or even just mitochondrial dysfunction in general, would become more of the standard of care versus pharmaceuticals and surgeries being being the first line of defense for for health and wellness. So exciting stuff. Moving forward to our second article, and this is another one from November of last year, so not that old, November 22nd of 2023. It's entitled Photodynamic Therapy with an Association of Methylene Blue and Toluidine Blue. That's that second meth- or type of blue I was talking about. So methylene blue and toluidine blue promoted a synergistic effect against oral squamous cell carcinoma. So again, quickly running through the abstract, just to give you guys a little bit of background. Among the most malignant cancers, oral squamous cell carcinoma stands out as the most common malignant head and neck tumor. Despite advances in the field of treatment, the prognosis of patients with OSCC, which is oral squamous cell carcinoma, remains poor. Aiming to overcome the limitations of the currently existing therapies against OSCC, the present work aims to investigate the potential of photodynamic therapy with phenothiazine derivatives used alone or in combination. And that phenothiazine would be the methylene blue and toluidine blue. So the incorporation of methylene blue and toluidine blue was evaluated in OSCC cell lines and a non-tumor cell line. Both compounds exhibited concentration and time-dependent incorporation with higher rates observed in tumor cells. They go on to say that essentially, based on the findings in this study, it was revealed that methylene blue and toluidine blue have synergistic effects when combined against SCC cells. And the SCC would be that squamous cell carcinoma. So these findings suggest that methylene blue or toluidine blue assisted with Photodynamic therapy holds promise for OSCC treatment. So again, this is extremely preliminary because they're using cell lines. So we would need to see this in vivo versus in vitro for for it to be prevalent, I guess, to our lives. It's just exciting to see. And we talked about this in prior episodes with methylene blue. The methylene blue alone has a bunch of promise as it relates to the fight and the prevention and the mitigation of cancer. But it's just great to see this type of research come out and and corroborate that. And now we have a second blue uh, to potentially be excited about, toluidine blue. And so that begs the question, well, (laughs) what the heck is toluidine blue? So similar to methylene blue, toluidine blue is primarily used as a biological stain in laboratory and medical settings, and it's not intended for direct therapeutic or health-promoting purposes. Its main application is in enhancing the visualization of cellular structures and tissues for research, diagnosis, and medical examinations. While toluidine blue itself is not considered a health-promoting substance, its use in certain medical and scientific contexts has contributed to advancements in understanding various biological processes, So here are some of its applications. We have histological staining, cytological staining, mast cell staining, bacterial staining, and evaluation of biopsy specimens. And just like methylene blue, toluidine blue is a, a synthetic dye salt, but this is you know, this type of information is is exactly what methylene blue was initially thought to be. You know, back in the late 1800s, it was initially used as, of course, uh, a dye for textiles. And then it was quickly found to be beneficial for staining because certain organelles and membranes and bacteria, such as the mitochondria, really drank up this blue. So it was easy to pick up these type of organelles in, in staining. And so really, that's what a lot of the characteristics and properties of, of toluidine blue are. Uh, so just a quick um, you know, background on, on it. It's a basic thiazine metachromatic dye with a high affinity for acidic tissue components, which would make it very useful in, in cancer cell situations because cancer cells are very acidic. Going on here, 
it stains nucleic acids blue and polysaccharides purple and also increases the sharpness of histology slide images. It's especially useful today for staining chromosomes in plant or animal tissues as a replacement for what's called acetoorsian stain. It also says that toluidine blue is often used to identify mast cells by virtue of the heparin in their cytoplasmic granules. And, and so on and so forth. But you get the picture. It, it's very similar to methylene blue with the histology characteristics and aspects as far as the stain. And, and, and again, there's not nearly as much information on toluidine blue as there is methylene blue uh, as far as any health benefits are derived. So I, I found that pretty interesting. That's kind of why I brought this uh, article to your attention is A, just to further expose the potential cancer benefits of methylene blue but then also expose you guys to this new blue of toluidine blue. Not sure how popular or if it's going to be an up-and-coming mitochondrial booster as methylene blue is. There's a lot of similarities, so maybe it could be an alternative. Maybe it's better. Maybe, maybe it's a nothing burger compared to methylene blue. But at least now you've been exposed to it. You're aware of it. And so regardless, at the end of the day, this article just points to that methylene blue and toluidine blue again, have synergistic effects when combined against oral squamous cell carcinoma. So there does seem to be some benefit and some interplay and some synergism as it relates to methylene blue and toluidine blue. But I guess we're going to have to wait for some more of this toluidine blue research to come out. And of course, I'll be keeping my eyes and my ears uh, wide open into the ground as it relates to toluidine blue information and research. So I'll be doing some deeper dives, you know, on my own. And if I come up with anything, I'll bring it to your guys' attention. But hey, at least we've been exposed to it and we're aware of it. And and again, we know methylene blue has a time and place for, for combating uh, cancer cells. Moving along to article number three. And this one should be pretty darn interesting. It has to do with red light therapy and concussion. Uh, and anytime I'm thinking brain injury or brain disease, not only am I thinking red light therapy, but of course I'm thinking methylene blue because um, as you've heard in prior episodes, the majority of methylene blue consumed ends up in the brain, which is the most mitochondrial dense tissue in the body. So that is a great thing. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're going to have mitochondrial dysfunction, one of the first places it's going to turn up is, is the brain. Of course, when we're talking about concussion, uh, that's not necessarily due to aging or anything like that. That's a traumatic injury. Uh, but regardless, when we're dealing with injury, when we're dealing with inflammation, when we're dealing with mitochondrial dysfunction, we're thinking red light therapy, we're thinking methylene blue. And this article came out less than a month ago, uh, several nice. weeks ago, actually, December 18th in 2023. It's entitled... A randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial evaluating transcranial photobiomodulation as treatment for concussion. And so, it's so hot off the press, I only have access to the abstract. But, nonetheless, we'll find out some interesting things with the abstract alone. So, the introduction is literature indicating that transcranial photobiomodulation may enable the brain to recover normal function following concussion, resulting in symptoms reduction and improved cognitive function following concussion is limited by small sample sizes and a lack of controls. So the methods used for this study, they conducted, of course, a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial examining the effect of six weeks of transcranial photobiomodulation in patients 11 years or older who received care for persistent post-concussion symptoms between September of 2012 and December of 2015. And the primary outcome measure was the mean difference in post-concussion symptom scale, total score, which is PCSS, total score, and raw impact which is I-M, capital P, capital A, capital C, capital T. So IMPACT, that's an acronym, composite scores between study entry and treatment completion. And so my initial job as a physical therapist, this is stepping away from the article, of course, but my first job as a physical therapist was at an outpatient clinic that we quote-unquote specialized in 
treating concussions. And so I went through some rigorous learning modules and, and, and courses that revolved around learning this impact uh, scoring system. So I'm, I'm quite familiar with it. So it's, it's very cool to hear that this is one of the uh, measurements that they use to determine the, the, uh, the benefit of, of red light therapy with, with helping with concussions. So I'm very familiar with that. So they use the post-concussion symptom scale and the impact scores with a study entry and upon treatment completion. And so participants received two 10-minute sessions, either with transcranial photobiomodulation units or via two placebo units three times per week. So two 10-minute sessions three times per week, that would be six 10-minute sessions throughout the week conglomerately. So they screened for potential confounding variables using unvariable analyses, they entered covariables that differed between the two groups on unvariable screening into a regression analysis. And they also considered adjusted odds ratio that did not cross one statistically significant. Going to the results, they had 48 participants that completed the study. Most were female at 63% and a majority sustained their injury during sports or exercise, 71% of them. Despite randomization, those that received transcranial photobiomodulation therapy reported a greater number of prior concussions. After adjusting for the effect of prior concussions and multiple comparisons, there were no significant differences between transcranial and placebo groups at three weeks or six weeks of treatment. So the conclusions of this article Despite showing promise in previous investigations, our study did not show benefit of transcranial photobiomodulation over placebo therapy in patients experiencing persistent post-concussion symptoms. Further investigation is needed to determine if varying the dose or timing alters the efficacy of trans, uh, transcranial photobiomodulation following concussion. So, the takeaway from this article, for me is I don't know what to take away from it. A, they provided the methods, but they didn't tell us, okay, so what was the transcranial apparatus? What were the wavelengths or wavelength utilized? What was the light irradiance? They said 10-minute sessions, but that doesn't mean anything if we don't know the light irradiance. That doesn't mean anything if we don't know the wavelength or wavelengths utilized. So, to, to summarize, and this isn't just this article, to summarize some of the issues with photobiomodulation treatment, or not treatment, um, studies as a whole, is we don't get enough details. Of course, this is just the abstract. It'd be great to have the, the full article, which I'm sure that's where it's detailed. And that's another issue with research in general is you have to pay to get a lot of these these full articles, which that kind of that kind of deters the purpose of of study because the the purpose of research is to provide information and so with that information we can move forward and progress as a society so it's a kind of a frustrating conundrum of sorts so i think this is just a perfect example again we got results the results said no significance was found but again as they alluded to was that due to the dosage was it due to the frequency of treatments? We know these patients were dealing with persistent post-concussion symptoms, which is analogous to chronic pain. Chronic pain, notoriously, is much more difficult to treat than in acute injury uh, when the, when the uh, inflammation and the inflammatory uh, storm, so to speak, is fresh and it's easier to, to treat uh, compared to inflammation and, and injury that's been uh, sitting out, sitting around for uh, three months, six months or longer. So again, these persistent post-concussion symptoms, that can be months and months after the person sustained their actual concussion. So not only is this an issue of what were the dosages, what were the parameters, but also how long had these people been um, post-concussion? Are we talking weeks? Are we talking months? Are we even potentially talking a year or two years? or multiple, I should say. So again, this is a prime example of, of an article or, or a piece of research that, that leaves us wanting a little more. Again, this is just the abstract. We don't have all the nitty gritty details, 
But regardless, the quality leaves more to be desired when we're talking photobiomodulation research. And so at the end of the day, it's like, how much can we hang our hat on the results of this piece of research? Because as I've reported on in previous episodes when talking about the research, specifically on concussions and TBIs, we know that adding red light therapy, transcranial red light therapy to the normal course of post-concussion injuries or TBIs has benefit. So that begs the question, why did this piece of research not show that? And and we kind of outlined uh, multiple reasons why that may be the case. And that doesn't mean that this piece of research or this article was bad or or the quality was poor. Uh, For all intents and purposes, maybe if we were to look at the the details and the parameter and the specs of, of the red light, or the near-infrared light, I should say, then we would have a more robust, well-rounded picture of this research. And, and it's important to remember that just because this didn't show favorable results for red light therapy, that's not a bad thing because it's just as important to know what doesn't work to get positive results because that's what leads us to try, you know, trial and error. So if these wavelengths and or if this dosage and or this frequency, meaning times per week, Uh, wasn't beneficial, then we got to tweak it and and then try again and then tweak it and try again until we do find the parameters or or the protocol that does work. And that's how we end up getting this accumulation of protocols for various uh, diseases and and conditions. Uh, It doesn't just happen overnight. It's through trial and error through this research. So it's just important to keep that perspective that this article doesn't say Photobiomodulation does not work for concussions. It is based on the parameters we use, based on all these metrics and data and analyses, we didn't find any statistical significant differences between placebo and photobiomodulation. So then further research can can read this, understand it, analyze it, and then produce a new piece of research that changes the parameters and, and possibly then we start to see those statistically significant benefits for photobiomodulation and concussion. And then you just recycle, rinse, and repeat. So that's the world of research in a nutshell. They're not all home runs, but in the end, the studies that don't necessarily show the positive benefits we're looking to attain are just as important because they pave the road for future studies to, to tweak those parameters and tweak those settings uh, to ultimately find those benefits that we're, that we're looking for. But let's wrap things up today with an article that came out this year. It came out January 1st, 2024. It's entitled Photobiomodulation Therapy Plus Usual Care. I think that's an interesting term. <laughs> usual care is better than usual care alone for plantar fasciitis a randomized controlled trial. So this one, this piece of research might apply to some of you out there listening to this episode and or you probably know someone, friend, family, colleague, otherwise, that's dealing with plantar fasciitis. And as a physical therapist, I taught this time and time again. And I'll tell you, and this may be even painful to, to hear if you're someone that has plantar fasciitis, cupping is one of the best ways to improve plantar fasciitis pain. So if you think about the plantar fascia, very, very thick and fibrous tissue that runs from essentially your calcaneus, the bottom of your heel, or even behind your heel, so to speak, all the way to your your metatarsals. And so it's a thick, it's fibrous, and when it gets irritated, those fibers that I was talking about, the fibers... In, in the fascia, I mean, we're talking about myofascial releasing with cupping. Well, talk about some some fascia that can get adhesed or that can get really sticky or, or irritated. And so normal, healthy fascia, and this can be any fascia in your body, but of course the plantar fasciitis or plantar fascia we're talking about, the fibers should be running in parallel to each other. That's the sign of a healthy fascia. When any fascia gets irritated, that fascia that should be parallel, those, those, those fibers that should be running parallel, they become less and less organized, or I should say they become more disorganized. And it gets to a point where instead of the fibers running in parallel with each other, they almost look like 
pixie sticks. You know, when you play that game and you drop all those sticks on the floor and they'd just be all different directions relative to each other. That's what abnormal or dysfunctional fascia looks like. The fibers are disaligned or malaligned or whatever term you want to use. And so what cupping does by by essentially stripping, going up and down your plantar fascia, and this is while the cup is suctioned, meaning it's pulling at the fascia, and you go up and down and you're going to hear these crinkles and these crinkles and these crinkles, and those crinkle sounds, regardless if you're doing your plantar fascia, your IT band, or or other areas where the fascia is easy to attack with a cup, those crinkles, that sound is a, is a sound of pathology. You should get to a place, or if you're a, a person with a healthy plantar fascia, you can cup the bottom of your foot, and it may be, you know, not comfortable, but you're not going to hear those crinkly sounds. So all of that to say, by, by cupping your plantar fascia consistently, if, if you're on the verge of plantar fascia, if you have chronic plantar fasciitis, cupping, I, I found by treating my patients, even cupping alone, uh, not even utilizing dry needling, cupping alone made the biggest difference in reducing and reversing plantar fasciitis pain with my patients. So I'll just throw that out there since we're on the topic. But let's move along here into this article because it's pretty darn interesting. Um, again, from January 1st of this year. So the introduction, just a little background on plantar fasciitis. Plantar fasciitis is the leading cause of heel pain in ambulatory settings, affecting up to 10% of adults. Though the name is misleading, plantar fasciitis is not primarily an inflammatory condition. Repetitive trauma to the connective tissue causes acute inflammation. However, it is a combination of tissue destruction, fascial thickening, collagen necrosis, matrix calcification, perifascial edema, and alterations in vascularization that lead to the debilitating pain associated with plantar fasciitis. So conservative plantar fasciitis, which consists of reduced activity loading, icing, which I'm not a fan of personally, that's a different story, stretching, orthotics, and taping and bracing. I'm also not a fan of orthotics and taping and bracing for the long term. Short term, I guess it's fine, but it kind of acts as a crutch. And that's another soapbox, kind of like I'm not a fan of icing. Um, I think orthotics and, and this taping and bracing concept is, is overutilized. But again, that's a topic for another day. So again, conservative plantar fasciitis treatment typically spans 6 to 12 months which is insane that it takes that long, and it shouldn't, is my point. And improvements are not often seen before six weeks of therapy. Again, to me personally, that's asinine. You should be able to improve symptoms quicker. If you're dealing with chronic, again, that's a different story. But in general, if you're dealing with your the colloquial plantar fasciitis, it's kind of a new injury for you, it shouldn't take that long to resolve. In some resistant cases, more aggressive, sometimes painful and invasive treatments are required, such as corticosteroid injections. I'm going to step in here again. You should avoid corticosteroid injections like the plague. Again, that's another crutch because it relieves the pain, which feels great, but then it inevitably comes back because you didn't treat the root cause. On top of that, and this is even a bigger issue as it relates to corticosteroid injections, Every time you have one of those injections, you uh, degenerate, you accelerate, I should say, you accelerate the degeneration of the collagen, of the tendons, of the ligaments, because people get this in their shoulder, they get it in their knee, they get it in their back. Every time you use corticosteroid injections, you're accelerating the degeneration of those tissues. And again, it's this vicious cycle where you get a corticosteroid injection, and then you're pain-free for six months, but then the pain comes back. So you get another corticosteroid injection, and then the pain comes back in three or four months, and then you go get another one. And so each time you get one in the same area, the relief, the duration of the relief is shorter. And again, you're further accelerating the degeneration of the tissues, which is creating a long-term issue. So if you can avoid the corticosteroid injections, or if it's offered to you, politely say no. That's just my my tip of the day. But again, so if we're, if we're talking about resistant cases of plantar fasciitis, the more aggressive, sometimes painful, invasive treatments 
are the corticosteroid injections. Then we have radiation, platelet-rich plasma injections, and of course, surgery. Photobiomodulation is an emerging therapy that uses non-ionizing visible and near-infrared light to affect endogenous chromophores and elicit photochemical events at the cellular level. Photobiomodulation therapy has been shown to improve other tendinopathies in studies of lateral epicondylitis, which is tennis elbow, shoulder tendinopathy, and Achilles tendinopathy when using optimized wavelengths and dosing parameters. That's music to my ears. Optimized wavelengths and dosing parameters. That sounds like a great protocol. The clinical benefit of photobiomodulation therapy for tendinopathies is thought to be mediated by collagen production, alignment of collagen fibers, just like I was talking about with cupping, and other mechanisms. So again, they're already saying that red light alone helps align the collagen fibers, but then you you compound that with, with the uh, benefits of cupping like I'm talking about. And with that revamped cupping system that BioLite just came out with, you're combining cupping and red light therapy at the same time. So you're getting this combo treatment by using one therapy, so to speak, or one modality. But moving along here, recent meta-analyses have reported positive findings supporting photobiomodulation as an effective treatment modality for plantar fasciitis, though the conclusions are somewhat heterogeneous due to inconsistent dosing parameters. Here we go again. We're talking about issues with the photobiomodulation research. So we're getting inconsistent wavelengths and power, application duration, intensity, and so forth. So specifically, the quote-unquote dose of photobiomodulation therapy is denoted by the intensity, which is shown as joules over centimeter squared. And so the intensity of the light delivered to the target area. However, the intensity is a product of the power, watts, and the application duration in seconds. Thus, equivalent quote-unquote doses could be achieved by proportionally increasing or decreasing both the power and application duration. Unfortunately, many studies do not adequately report these values, making direct comparisons difficult. As with any treatment, choosing the correct dose is essential to optimizing safety and efficacy. And ladies and gentlemen, look no further than the article we just covered about the concussions. Granted, we don't know the specific dosages they used. They obviously didn't get optimized dosages because they didn't get positive results. Moving forward here in the article, of the multiple parameters for photobiomodulation therapy, wavelength and power are likely the most important, or I should say, they should say wavelength and light irradiance, uh, but power will do for now, as wavelength determines the depth of photon penetration and power determines the number of photons, or I should say light irradiation, determines the number of photons delivered to a target tissue. And I'm going to repeat this, ladies and gentlemen, and I've said this before, but it bears repeating here since it's been said in the article that it's not the light irradiance that determines the depth of penetration. It's the wavelength. So that number that's either 600 to 700 nanometers for red, the larger the number, the deeper it penetrates, regardless of what the light irradiance is. So keep that in mind. So when we're looking at light that you'd want to penetrate deeper into your body, you want a larger number in the near-infrared range, which is 800 to about, I think, 2,500. So the larger the wavelength, the deeper it penetrates. And that's why near-infrared, or sorry, that's why infrared saunas, which are predominantly mid and far infrared, which are much longer wavelengths than even the near-infrared of red light therapy, That's why infrared saunas penetrate you basically to your core. That's why you get that deep sweat. That's why you get that deep detox because those mid and far infrared wavelengths are penetrating you uh, as deep as possible, essentially. So again, back to red light therapy, back to this article, wavelengths dictate depth of penetration and it's the light irradiance that dictates how many photons are delivered to that target tissue at a given time. So now back to the article. Photobiomodulation in the 810 
to 980 nanometer wavelength range is known to penetrate the skin and superficial tissues to reach underlying tissues such as muscle and tendon, including the target tissue of the plantar fascia. So of course they're basically saying red light's not gonna work because we're trying to get to the plantar fascia, so you must integrate near infrared light. Not even integrate, you must utilize it. I mean, you don't need red light therapy for this because it's only gonna treat the skin surface. So again, when treating collagen, not collagen of the skin, but collagen of the tendons and ligaments and so forth, you must use near infrared wavelengths. Lastly here, photobiomodulation therapy is non-invasive and has potential to address the root cause and dysfunction of the injury, decrease the pain of plantar fascia quickly, or excuse me, plantar fasciitis quickly, and return individuals to increased function and physical activity. The goal of this study was to assess the clinical impact of photobiomodulation therapy on pain and function in people with plantar fasciitis. Okay, so when we get into the interventions of this study, here is the usual care protocol. So all participants were instructed to complete a usual care protocol daily for six weeks. Beginning on day one, based on recommendations by current clinical practice guidelines of plantar fasciitis treatment. And so the usual care group participants were given the opportunity to receive photobiomodulation outside of the study protocol for their affected foot after the completion of the six-week study period. So the usual care protocol consisted of calf stretch with the knee straight, calf stretch with the knee bent. And the reason for that is because when the knee is straight and when the knee is bent targets different muscles. One targets the, the calf muscle, which is called the gastrocnemius, and the other targets the soleus muscle, which is the muscle that's, that's deeper to the calf muscle. And of course, both of those attached become the Achilles tendon, and the Achilles tendon eventually turns into uh, the, the plantar fascia. The second piece, or I should say the third piece, because you have calf stretch, knee straight, knee bent, and then you have self-stretching and mobilization of the plantar fascia, where you're basically pulling your toes towards your shin. Again, that's another stretch for the fascia. Then you have single leg balance. You have toe taps, where your foot's on the ground, you bring your toes off the ground, back toes back on the ground, toes off the ground. So again, that's like a more active stretch for the fascia. Then you have calf raises. And then you have your ankle inversion, eversion strengthening. So again, the usual care group did those every day for six weeks. And then we have the photobiomodulation therapy protocol. So both intervention groups received photobiomodulation three times a week for three weeks for a total of nine treatments and completed the usual care protocol daily for six weeks beginning on day one. All participants in both photobiomodulation groups received the same dose at each treatment session. The only difference between groups was whether photobi photobiomodulation therapy was delivered fast or slow. So here, fast photobiomodulation therapy refers to a dose of 10 joules per centimeter squared delivered for one second per square centimeter of skin at 10 watts, while the slow photobiomodulation therapy re refers to the same dose of 10 joules per centimeter squared, but it was delivered at 0.4 seconds per square centimeter of skin at 25 watts. So to achieve a standardized photobiomodulation therapy dose of 10 joules per centimeter squared, the study team calculated the area of each participant's foot and calf at baseline and varied the time over which the total dose was delivered by calibrating the output power of 10 watts or 25 watts. So they did use a laser for this, of course, which had a blend of 20% 810 nanometer and 80% 980 nanometer wavelength. So basically a blend of one to four, if you will, meaning for every one part, 810, there was four parts, 980, meaning the most of the near-infrared light they used was of the longer form, meaning it penetrated deeper into the body. So that's interesting to note, and that, that's good to know. The outcomes, so when it's all said and done, the primary outcomes were pain, assessed by the Defense and Veterans Pain Rating Scale, 
and function assessed by the foot and ankle ability measure. All participants completed daily uh, diary for six weeks beginning on day one. And in addition, they tracked self-reported activity, mood, sleep interference, and stress. But we're going to gloss over, you know, the sample size, randomization, statistical methods. Those are kind of boring to read. Uh, so let's just jump to the results. Again, if you want to check out anything and everything in this article, just, just check out the link in the show notes below or to this episode. But let's get to the results. And so for outcomes and estimation, for pain, because there was no difference in outcomes between the two treatment groups for the primary analysis, the photobiomodulation groups were pooled. Both photobiomodulation groups received the same dose, 10 joules per centimeter squared, with the only difference being the speed at which the total dose was delivered, either slow at one second per centimeter squared or fast at 0.4 centimeters uh, seconds per square centimeter. And I think they actually articulated that backwards above. I'm double checking right now. Yeah, because here they say fast refers to 10 joules delivered at one second. Slow refers to the same dosage at 0.4 seconds. And as I said, that that didn't seem right to me. So they actually said that backwards. So the fast dose would be 0.4 seconds per centimeter squared. And the slow dose would be one second per that same area. But regardless, the pooled photobiomodulation groups experienced a reduction in pain over the first three weeks with a patient level average of change from 4.47 to 2.84 the usual care group experienced a small reduction in pain over the same time period, having a patient-level average change from 4.03 to 3.76. So not even a 10% reduction, whereas the um, photobiomodulation group had a uh, 10, 20, 30, almost a 40% reduction. The effects on pain were not meaningfully different between the photobiomodulation groups, and that should make complete sense to you guys Because again, at the end of the day, they received the exact same dose, that 10 joules per centimeter squared. The only thing different was the speed. And and an analogous comparison to that would be one person using a red light therapy panel, which has a higher light irradiance, meaning it's going to be a faster treatment compared to someone who uses, let's say, the cocoon, which is a much lower light irradiance, and that would be the quote-unquote slow treatment, the low and slow. But as long as the person using a panel, the person using the cocoon, have the exact same dosage, you should get very similar benefits. And this article is corroborating that. So that's very cool to see. And again, that makes total sense. From three to six weeks, pain reduction appeared to plateau in the pooled photobiomodulation groups and in the usual care group as well. When stratifying the 10-watt and the 25-watt photobiomodulation groups, no significant difference was observed, which is illustrated by their confidence band, blah, blah, blah. That's kind of the boring stuff. So now we're at function. That was about pain. Now this is function. Functional outcomes also showed some improvements in the photobiomodulation groups compared to the usual care. Patient level average function per uh, the FAAM sports subscale improved in the pooled photobiomodulation groups from baseline to six weeks. So the average was 0.45, then the mean was 0.66. While, so again, that's about a, a 10, 20, again, almost a 40% increase, while the functional improvement was slight at best in the usual care group from baseline with a mean of 0.45, and then at six weeks at 0.5, so barely a 10% increase. And so there was no measured difference between the 10-watt and the 25-watt photobiomodulation groups in term of the FAM sports or the FAAM sports uh, functional outcome measurements. And again, the speed didn't change the result as long as the dosage was the same. But just like pain, integrating red light therapy made a significant difference, whereas those that just did the usual care are having about that 10% improvement. And let's just jump down into the discussion portion of this article. So they go on to say that there were three main findings as relates to the study's primary aims. One, 
Photobiomodulation therapy at both power levels, the 10 watt and the 25 watt, both being administered to achieve that 10 joules per centimeter squared dose, resulted in clinically relevant significant reductions in pain, whereas the usual care group did not exhibit reductions in pain. Number two, photobiomodulation therapy at both power levels resulted in some increases in the FAM sports subscale, the FAAM sports subscale. However, this did not achieve the level of statistical significance and no differences were noted in the FAAM ADL activities of daily living between both photobiomodulation groups and the UC group, which is the usual care group. Number three, no statistically significant differences were noted in PAIM, FAM sports, or FAM ADL between the 10-watt and the 25-watt photobiomodulation groups. And again, that number three, that points directly to speed didn't matter as long as the dosage was the same. They go on to say, two recent systematic reviews and meta-analyses reported significant improvements in pain, both the visual analog scale and function, which is the foot function index, in favor of photobiomodulation therapy over control. Other photobiomodulation therapy studies for plantar fasciitis, including those in recent meta-analyses, used different outcome measures, wavelengths, and other parameters, and often did not report their methods completing completely, making direct comparison challenging. However, the findings are consistent in that pain and function are improved over time when the appropriate wavelength and other treatment parameters are chosen, such as the, the light irradiance and the application time. And this is a very interesting uh, part of the article that they included. So while it was not a direct aim of this study, medication diary descriptive statistics indicated that daily non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug consumption decreased in the treatment groups, but remained steady or increased in the usual care participants. This is an interesting finding that warrants further study considering the risks of long-term non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug use. So along with the findings in the study that showed that different speeds of red light therapy treatment that had the same dosage led to the same benefits, led to the same results, this has to be right up there with one of the most important take-homes, is that red light therapy decreased the usage of things like ibuprofen, Tylenol, Advil, what have you, it reduced the consumption of those, while the usual care had the same or increased usage. And again, this isn't new results because we know that red light therapy has the same anti-inflammatory effect as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, but without potentially disrupting and degenerating your, your you know, gastric lining or your, your GI lining. Uh, so we already know that, but to further corroborate that in the study without them even you know, trying to, to look at that per se, that's a massive, massive take-home point. Again, light therapy, low risk, high reward. And we've seen this in thyroid studies as well. It's like people are doing red light therapy for, for less than 10 treatments or 10 treatments and they're cutting their medication in half or getting off of it altogether. So this is one of the beautiful aspects of light therapy, particularly red light therapy, is the positive benefits we see as it relates to medication or, or drug usage. And to wrap up this article, let's just jump to the conclusion. There's a lot more in the discussion uh, and I invite you guys to go check out that article to read it all, but, but we kind of covered the highlights uh, for the purpose of, of this episode. So the conclusion, the standardized photobiomodulation therapy protocol plus usual care resulted in statistically and clinically significant decreased pain and improvements in function in the FAM sports subscale compared to usual care alone. Additionally, there was no difference in outcomes between the groups receiving 10 watts and 25 watts output power with a standardized energy density of 10 joules per centimeter squared over the long term, with improvements being sustained at the six-month follow-up point. The lack of adverse events and significantly and clinically meaningful decreases in pain scores support previous work that photobiomodulation is a safe innovative treatment targeting the root cause of injury to the plantar fasciitis. 
So if you know anyone, family, friend, colleague, or, or yourself, point them in the direction of this episode. Have them listen to at least this portion of where we discussed the article on plantar fasciitis because essentially if they're not using red light therapy but they're just doing the colloquial physical therapy and, and you know the stretches, the strengthening, the mobilization, you know, all that stuff, but they're not using red light therapy, then this article is clearly saying they're missing out on a lot of potential benefits in a quicker uh, recovery, reduced pain, improved function. Um, so please share this with, with anyone dealing with plantar fasciitis. At the end of the day, it, it's a no-brainer after reading this article. So that's all I have for you today, guys. But I hope that was a fun little review of the four research articles. We really covered a lot uh, from plantar fasciitis to red light therapy and concussions and, and the whole thought process behind an article that doesn't necessarily show positive results. We looked into uh, methylene blue and toluidine blue as it relates to fighting uh, oral squamous cell cancer. And then we looked at red flags in primary mitochondrial diseases. So we covered a lot of different topics. I hope you found it beneficial. If you found any of this information exciting or relevant or profound, especially if, if there's someone that you know uh, that could benefit from listening to it, please share this episode. And if you haven't already, please just take a quick 15 to 30 seconds to leave a five-star review, either on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Uh, you don't have to leave a written testimony unless you feel compelled to do so. But again, the more ratings we can get for the episode, the more that people can get exposed to the same type of information that you've enjoyed and learned from. Enjoy your January. Enjoy your beginning to 2024. I hope you're integrating red light therapy and getting your, your full spectrum sun exposure. Uh, but as always, I'll see you guys on the next episode. As always, light up your health. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, Go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.